You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, the UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features the first keynote, which was given by Professor Ruth Carris from Trinity College, Dublin. Professor Carris's paper, Mutilation as Gendered Punishment, State Violence and Sexual Transgression in Medieval Europe, was chaired by Dr. Elva Johnston from UCD. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Elva Johnston, and I lecture in late antique and early medieval history in UCD. And before introducing um, our keynote speaker, and it's a really great pleasure to be doing so, I'd like to congratulate the organisers of the conference for putting together a fantastic multiple Fridays programme. And it's really, really great to see medieval history as very central to that programme and not just an afterthought. And so that's really culminating um, in today's keynote um, keynote talk. So it's a great pleasure for me to introduce uh, Professor Ruth Karras. Um, She's the Lecky Professor of History in Trinity College, and she came uh, to us here from the University of Minnesota, where she was a distinguished professor as well. Um, Those of you who work in medieval history, and particularly in the areas of sexuality and gender, will actually be quite familiar uh, with Professor Karras's work. It's been groundbreaking and incredibly important, um, really, over the last number of decades. Um, I'm not going to list all of her publications because it would take too long. There's a vast multitude of articles um, and also several important studies. I'll just give you a flavour of some of them so you can get a sense of how important um, Professor Karras's work has been. So she's published everything from uh, material that has been used uh, as as textbooks, including Sexuality in Medieval Europe. I used that myself for a third year class uh, a few years back. Um, to her studies um, on marriages, men, women and sexual unions in medieval Europe, from boys to men, formations of masculinity in late medieval England, uh, common women, prostitution and sexuality in medieval England, and and recently uh, slavery and society in medieval uh, Scandinavia. Um, It's no exaggeration to say that Professor Karras's work um, has been really fundamental to the extent to which sexuality Uh, particularly studies, I would say, around masculinity, um, but also around gender uh, gender more generally, have become much more centralised in university uh, curricula. I mean, it's a really important body of work. So it's fantastic to have the opportunity to hear her uh, to speak this evening. And today she'll be talking to us uh, about uh, mutilation as gendered punishment, um, state violence and sexual transgression in medieval Europe. Um, So I'll hand over to Ruth now. Thanks, Elva. And thanks very much to the organizers for putting on such a 
very interesting conference, and I was also very glad to see some medieval material included. So I was very uh, honored and delighted to be asked to give a keynote. And when Mary asked me, I said that the talk that I would give would have to come with a content warning. And she said, well, actually, the whole conference has to come with a content warning because there, throughout, there's some fairly dark material being uh, being discussed. There are going to be no graphic images of violence in this talk, but there will be discussion of rape and, as the title says, of mutilation. So it probably won't come as news to anyone that mutilation was used as a judicial punishment in various societies uh, across the globe. And it can serve several different purposes. Sometimes it's just a punishment short of death. Uh, sometimes it's retributive justice, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth or the loss of the limb with which a crime was committed, such as chopping off a hand for theft, uh, which can also be a symbolic inscription of the crime on the body. I wanna to talk today particularly about the use of mutilation as punishment for sexual offenses, and particularly those involving same-sex activity in medieval Europe. These punishments were highly gendered and related as many medieval ideas about sexuality were to reproduction. So by way of apology, what I'm not going to talk about today are the more positive aspects of same-sex relations in medieval culture. Scholars of medieval sexuality, particularly in the field of literature, have demonstrated the existence of subcultures of same-sex love and desire, whether expressed through identity, writing, or action. These are not, not having nice medieval manuscript illuminations to show you, I'm showing you sort of visual footnotes. This is some of the important scholarship on uh, love and desire. There is a lot in the Middle Ages that's queer or that's accepting of the queer, including rich trans traditions of love poetry in many medieval languages. What I'm talking about here is rather grimmer, that is state violence or the threat of state violence because it's not entirely clear that uh, what I'm going to be talking about in law was ever put into practice. The chronology of the widespread criminalization of same-sex activity in medieval Europe is generally agreed upon. John Boswell argued 40 years ago now that up until the 12th century, same-sex desire and activity were not a major concern to either the church or lay society, but that this changed in the 13th century because legal systems began to adopt strict penalties and sometimes enforce them. And churchmen following in particular the lead of Thomas Aquinas used a discourse of nature to cast any non-reproductive sex as deeply deviant. The discourse of nature was very far from unitary and medieval commentators thought uh, that it was in some men's natures to desire penetration. But while this demonstrates that the concept of natural was indeed very complicated, these writers were working against a background of church doctrine. R.I. Moore adopted Boswell's argument and connected it to a larger framework of the formation of a persecuting society. So the 13th century is the era in which the church set up legal frameworks to investigate heretics, sort of the late 12th into the 13th century, to investigate heretics 
uh, not, Moore suggests, because heretics were becoming a worse problem, but because it could. In other words, these apparatuses were a way for emerging secular powers together with the church to establish and assert their own authority. And the categorizing and persecution of sexual as well as religious deviance was part of the logic of developing institutions of power. And Moore suggests that the persecution of what he called male homosexuality came somewhat later than the persecution of heretics and Jews and was modeled on it. Now, of course, negative attitudes towards same-sex relations used as political tools were known before the 13th century. The emperor, Henry IV, enemy of Pope Gregory VII and the church reform movement in the 11th century, was accused by churchmen of sexual sin with both genders. These were rhetorical rather than practical accusations. He was not put on trial. It was just, you know, he's a, he's a known sexual sinner. And it's hard to know how much real concern with behavior was behind them and how much they merely reflect partisan mudslinging. But the key is that this kind of mud was available to sling. Secular law in Latin Christendom, though up through the Central Middle Ages, for the most part, was not especially concerned with same-sex behavior and accusations like those against uh, Henry IV didn't bring with them prosecution. Uh, as I talk about what develops in the 13th century, I'm going to be using the term sodomy. Uh, where the Latin or the various medieval vernaculars use its cognates. Now, that doesn't always refer to same-sex activity in medieval texts. It could be used to denote any sort of sexual intercourse other than penis in vagina, man on top. It can also be used in a more generalized way to mean not specific deviant activities, but just a general miasma of sexual sin. Mark Jordan argued that sodomy did not have a stable meaning in medieval theology, but it was just in a very general way associated with outsiders and easily, easily slipped into metaphors of contagion. A lot of legal contexts don't use it at all, but when it appears in a legal context, it most often means sex between two men. In, in an ecclesiastical context, as in the enumeration of the various branches of lechery by late medieval moralists, writers most often use phrases like the sin against nature or the unspeakable sin rather than the term sodomy. But sodomy was used in sublegal contexts, and as Boswell and Moore noted, in the 13th century, we start seeing the death penalty. Uh, the Coutume de Beauvaisis, compiled in 1283, um, it's a customary law of it's one region of northern France, uh, compiled by Philippe de Beaumanoir, not a legislative enactment, but a textbook purporting to report the customary law of this region as it stood, prescribed burning for sodomy. So it lists drawing and hanging as punishment for treason, murder, manslaughter, or rape, and then hanging for arson and theft. And then it provides whoever errs against the faith and does not wish to return to the way of truth presumably referring to heresy, or who commits sodomy, he must be burned and forfeit all his goods. 
Alfonso of Castile's mid-13th century Siete Partidas also provided death for sodomy. The section on sodomy is quite brief as to the penalty, but it goes into a huge amount of detail with regard to the definition of sodomy. It's a sin with which men do which men do with each other. Women don't come into it, but what it goes into a lot of detail about is the extent to which God hates it. And Alfonso seems to have used sodomy along with treason as an accusation against his political enemies. We also find the death penalty for sodomy in English legal textbooks, including Fleta, written in Latin shortly after 1290, which stipulates burial alive, and Britain in French from about the same time, which stipulates burning. In each case, the sodomites are one out of a long list of criminals uh, to be executed in this manner. So these are all late 13th century, and none of them is a piece of legislation except the Siete Partidas, sort of. Uh, they're treatises presenting what purports to be custom, but in what was to them an idealized way. This is what we think the law ought to be. So there is one text that's a little bit earlier and a little bit different in that it provides mutilation for a first or second offense for sodomy rather than the death penalty. And that it specifically includes women, unlike these other texts. The Livre de Justice et de Plaie was written around 1260 in the Orléans region. And this is the first example that I know of, of secular law explicitly prohibiting women's same-sex activity. Uh, so the term sodomy here presumably covers both men and women, since it says a woman who does it. Uh, the most texts that talk about sodomy use masculine forms, but it is possible since the um, masculine form is also used in many European languages that didn't have a neuter. The masculine form is, uh, is also used for the generic. So it is possible that elsewhere where we see sodomy, it may be intended in a non-gender specific way as it clearly is um, in this text. Judith Bennett has discussed some of the reasons why uh, same-sex relationships between women do not appear very often in the sources because they didn't prevent women from bearing children to their husbands, and they didn't obscure the paternity of children, because they didn't involve penises or sperm, and thus in a pervasively male-focused system, they just didn't matter very much. And so much of the, most of the evidence for criminalization refers to men. Helmut Puff this has identified several cases involving women in late medieval Germany, but the one he discusses in most detail, this is the one of Katharina Hetzeldorfer, that some of you who are medievalists may be familiar with. The offense was only described and it wasn't labeled either sodomy or anything else. And uh, both male and female same-sex relations were, in the cases that Puff describes, assimilated to a a cross-sex pattern and in which one partner plays the male and the other one plays the female role. So the Livre de Justice et de Play prescribe castration and then loss of member for men and loss of a member for women. But the member is not specified. Now with men, when you see the word, he must lose his member, 
we assume that means his penis. That's usually what it means when we know for sure, but it could, it could possibly mean a member. And the French just says he must lose member. Uh, the uh, Louis Crompton has suggested that the juxtaposition of these passages on men and on women indicate that uh, the woman would use, would lose an equivalent member, his phrase, to the man's castration, and that it refers to uh, clitoridectomy. As far as I can find, clitoridectomy is not attested anywhere in the Middle Ages as a punishment for anything. And it's not even clear that there are any references in the Middle Ages to the clitoris very clearly. So I would suggest that facial mutilation may be considered the equivalent and the member that she's going to lose might be her nose. And to see why I'm gonna take you back further, another century and a half, to the Council of Nablus in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, held in 1120. So the scholars who've discussed the crackdown on sodomy in Europe in the 13th century do mention Nablus in the 12th century, but they mention it as an aside. I mean, Boswell and Moore uh, don't really make much of the fact that this is 150 years before you see anything like this in Europe. I suggest that this council is not only an important precedent, but perhaps a source. The criminalization of same-sex activity in the Latin West may have been an un unintended consequence of Western European polemic against Muslim societies. A set of laws created in a frontier situation may have been transported to Europe and what we would in modern terms call homophobic legislation grew out of what we would call Islamophobic precedent. So the council at Nablus came just over 20 years after the establishment of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem in 1099. And it was called by both the patriarch of Jerusalem, the church official, and the king of Jerusalem. And it was intended by both lay and ecclesiastical officials. The basic purpose of the council was to resolve the relationship between church and state in the kingdom of Jerusalem. But the canons, after dealing with that, went on to regulate other activity, including extremely harsh punishments, such as exile, mutilation, or death for illicit sexual activity. For example, Canon 5 provides an unprecedented punishment for adultery on the part of a man whoever shall be proved to have lain with the wife of another, the sentence of the court having been heard, shall be emasculated and shall be expelled from this land. The adulteress shall have her nose cut off. Roman law had given the husband the right under some circumstances to kill a couple caught in flagrante, but the state provided only the punishment of exile. Uh, the um, Christ's admonition to uh, the crowd stoning the woman taken in adultery, let him who was without sin cast the first stone, was a response to the law in Leviticus uh, in which the woman was to be put to death. The church condemned adultery by both men and women and set penance for it, sometimes allowed a husband to repudiate his wife for it, although not to marry another. But note here, 
the adultery that's punished for men is not a married man having sex with a woman who's not his wife. It's a man having sex with the wife of another. Uh, the canons, of, oh, and sorry, here's Christ and the woman taken in adultery um, in a medieval image. Uh, the canons of Nablus also provided castration or other sorts of maiming for other sexual crimes, in particularly those across religious lines. So uh, a man having sex with a, what they called a, a Saracen woman, uh, a um, raping his own uh, Saracen enslaved woman, uh, having sex with someone else's enslaved woman, and then the uh, punishment of a Christian woman for sex with a Saracen. Saracen in these texts usually means the local population. The uh, armies that the uh, Crusaders were fighting against, the, uh, who at this time would have been the Seljuks, who are usually referred to as Turks, although though that distinction isn't always strictly followed. The punishment for sodomy was uh, even harsher, burning. And here I have used a gender neutral reflexive pronoun because the gender neutral pronouns in Latin, the, the reflexive pronouns in Latin are gender neutral. Uh, but my guess is since this talks about active and passive is that it's, return, that it's referring to men. Uh, so it does make a distinction between active and passive, although only to emphasize that both uh, are subject to punishment. Canon uh, 10, the third one here, um, uh, sorry, this, the, um, seems to canon 10 seems to imply that regardless of age, the passive partner could be considered a victim of rape. That is someone who has suffered it by force. Uh, if they don't come forward, uh, he shall be judged as a sodomite. And um, this, uh, speaks, I think, to what uh, what Neve talked about this morning, where women who were raped were to be considered complicit if they did not come forward here. This is also the case for men who are raped. And uh, the this also suggests that uh, the victim is most likely a, a child or an old person. Um, a victim of rape. As suggested in recent, a recent book by Diane Elliott, or in the subculture of medieval Florence, described by Michael Rocky, sodomy was very much understood as an age-patterned offense, mature men or older boys with younger boys. And so the inclusion of elders as a victim here suggests that ideas about same-sex rape were shaped not only by the cultural division of um, male homosexuality into active masculine and passive effeminate, but also had to do with physical strength. And anyone who was likely to be not at his peak of physical strength was potentially a victim. Now, in the canons of Nablus, as in so many other contexts, the only sexual behavior by women that is a matter of explicit concern is that with men. The death penalty for sodomy uh, suggests that sodomy was the most serious of sexual offenses, but burning is specified 
only for the first offense. So the, the canons eight, nine, and 10 say the penalty is burning, but 11 says if he repents and does penance, he's given another chance, uh, both he's given a second chance and then a third chance before he would be put to death. Now, one of the things that suggests to me that these laws were not put into force and not even meant to be put into force is the use of the different language for mutilation uh, for different sexual crimes. Four different terms are used for male genital mutilation. It's four different Latin terms, so I've given approximate English equivalents. And then for uh, women's nasal mutilation, two different um, Latin terms are used. In the two different canons about burning for sodomy, they also use two different terms for burning. And so the reason these different terms are used, I don't think that burned and given over to the flames mean anything different at all. I think what we're dealing with here is elegant variation. Whether in just rhetorical variation, different terminology for the same thing, or saying, well, somebody just saying, well, we have two different offenses here, so let's think up two different ways of, uh, you know, two different kinds of punishment. So I think the canons were intended to be largely symbolic, a statement of the moral stance of the ecclesiastical and lay authorities realigning the community in the kingdom of Jerusalem with God by placing very harsh punishments, but entirely theoretical ones, on behavior that's believed to contradict God's God's law. So it sounds a lot too careful to be a codification of uh, current practice. And the fact that only one of many chroniclers of the kingdom of of Jerusalem at this time mentions the council of Nablus at all, and that he is William of Tyre, and he doesn't list the canons, uh, suggests that they're not, they were not intended to be practical law. And in fact, the canons as found in the one surviving manuscript, which is much later, we don't know for sure that those were the canons as enacted at the council. How common would sexual contact have been between members of the different communities in the Latin East? Well, Baldwin I and Baldwin II of Jerusalem both married Armenian Christians, as did many of the other Frankish nobility. Marriage between Christians of different communities, however, is very different from sexual relations between Christians and Muslims, which would not be recognized as marriage. It was also quite different from sexual activities between men. Now, um, Baldwin II is the king who was ruling at the time of this council, 1120. Baldwin I, his predecessor, it's been suggested by J. Rubenstein, lived in a chainmail closet. Uh, Not only did he have male lovers, but... um, at least one Muslim or possibly converted Muslim lover. And there may have been a certain sensitivity about this uh, among the nobility of the kingdom. In 1119, the uh, nobility of Outremer, as the uh, Frankish dominions in what they would have called the Holy Land uh, were known as, 
major military defeat in 1119, uh, the field of blood where an army from Antioch was um, very badly defeated. And this may have prompted the, those attending the council to assert a particularly strong moral code of contact, conduct, sort of a performance of purity directed against sexual misbehavior with non-Christians who could have been a real threat if the kingdom of Jerusalem were to be invaded uh, by uh, Muslim armies. But the focus on purity doesn't need to be solely a direct result of this particular battle, because in the early years of Outremer, there's a general sense of being a frontier society and a constant concern about any behavior that might put the uh, community, the Christian community, at physical or moral risk. Now, Benjamin Kadar has uh, worked on the canons of the Council of Nablus and has suggested that they resemble Byzantine legal issuances, particularly the, the eclogues or ecloga dating from around 741, which may be a source for some of the punishments. There was a uh, tradition in the Byzantine Empire of a death penalty for sex between men, although not known in, uh, in Western Europe. Uh, but all the examples of it being put into practice are uh, much earlier. I mean, it's the age of Justinian. Uh, by the Central Middle Ages, uh, commentators who read the novels of Justinian or who read Procopius didn't, weren't providing contemporary examples. They did with many other things, where they'd read about something Justinian did, and they would give an example from their own time. They don't with the death penalty for sodomy, which suggests that it was no longer being practiced. Nevertheless, the eclogues were known to the local Greek Christian population who were one of the Christian groups established in the Middle East before the Crusaders arrived. Castration as punishment does appear in the eclogues, although not specifically for uh, the offenses for which the Nablus canons prescribe it. The punishment for women adulterers in Nablus, having their noses cut off, resembles that in the eclogues where it was applied to men as well for various offenses. Death by the sword is the punishment for sex between men rather than burning, although the passive partner could be spared if underage. Uh, penectomy was the punishment for bestiality. The discussion of castration as punishment does not turn up in other legal texts from the Latin East. Punishment for anything does not turn up in other legal texts from the Latin East. It could be that its use at Nablus, taken from Greek law, was an effort to position the Latin leaders as leaders of all the Christians in the region. They were the political rulers, but to, punish, to position them sort of as the moral um, rulers, too. Now, the point of the of harsh punishments for adultery and particularly um, harsh, harsher punishments for adultery by women than by men in the ancient world, uh, at least ostensibly, was to maintain the integrity of the bloodline. This is why under Roman law, adultery was sex involving a married woman. The marital status of the man didn't matter. 
because it didn't cast his bloodline into doubt. Christianity had brought with it, in theory, a repudiation of the sexual double standard so that a married man who had sex with a woman who wasn't his wife could be considered an adulterer also. Um, but this is why the punishment of castration might have been seen as particularly appropriate for a man who slept with another man's wife, as at Nablus. It's not just the removal of the limb with which the offense had been committed. It was also a removal of the ability to reproduce. The tight link uh, between male-female intercourse and reproduction in an era without contraception gave rise to what Patricia Simons has called a semenotic economy in which the ability to produce seed was the sign of masculinity, not the size of the penis, and therefore taking away of the ability to produce seed was crucially important. Castration for rape appeared in several other European legal traditions, notably England, uh, although again, it's not clear this penalty was ever applied in practice. It wasn't so easy, however, to remove a woman's capacity to reproduce, nor did they necessarily want to. And so punishments for women had to be different. Now, sex between men in the canons of Nablus didn't fit this punishment fits the crime model. The punishment there um, after um, on, on the uh, third offense was death. The first time in Western European culture that this was the case. And even though this is happening in the Middle East, it's essentially Western European culture. I mean, in, in 1120, I mean, by later on in the 13th century, there are, uh, there's quite a large um, noble community of people who were born in Outremer and uh, who don't necessarily see eye to eye with waves of new crusaders who were coming in. Most of the people who were adults in 1120 were people who, who came from uh, Western Europe as crusaders. Um, it's, so it's in the, um, you know, a century and a half after this, as I mentioned, that we find a similar punishment in Western Europe. Uh, and scholars of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, such as Adam Bishop, suggest that the inclusion of the burning of what he calls adult homosexuals in the Nablus canons was a common punishment for homosexuals in the high Middle Ages. This is absolutely not true. This is not the case until the 13th century, and these canons opened up new territory. The next question is, can the laws in 13th century Europe have been influenced uh, by the canons of Nablus? Well, speculatively, yes, they could have. Nablus was certainly ahead of its time on clothing regulations. John Tolan takes the strictures of Nablus against Muslims wearing Frankish clothing as in the same spirit as the Fourth Lateran Council uh, of the Latin Church a century later in 1215, which required that Muslims and Jews be distinct from Christians in their dress and specified that the reason was to avoid sexual relations between Christians and people of other religions. Uh, 
And I would suggest this is perhaps not just in the same spirit as the Nablus canons, but uh, based on knowledge of them. The technical details uh, by which this would have been transmitted, I have not been able to find a smoking gun. According to William of Tyre, there were copies of the Nablus canons in every church in the kingdom of Jerusalem. Only one has survived, one that was from the church at Sidon, and the manuscript that it's in contains other legal material as well, and it ended up in the Pope's library in Avignon. And the, uh, the last bishop of Sidon, who fled uh, after the fall of the uh, last crusader state in 1291, uh, was known to have been in Avignon between 1319 and 1327. And there are a bunch of manuscripts from this church um, that uh, ended up in the library in Avignon, and he may have brought them. Uh, but that's not until the 14th century. There certainly could have been other copies in Europe earlier, or simply knowledge of the canons. Uh, we don't have a copy. A number of European legal scholars are known to have been in Outremer temporarily for one or several years at a time and then returned to Europe. Their training would have been in Roman and canon law rather than in customary or royal law, but they could still have ended up uh, being involved in the drafting of the Livre de Justice et de Plaie because it is in large part a translation from or summary of Roman law. And it relies heavily on Justinian, not for the particular passage in question here, but overall. It's entirely plausible that the person who compiled it had studied with a Romanist or had been trained as a Romanist who had worked in Outremer. It doesn't need to have been the entire law book or the entire set of canons that became known in Western Europe. Particular details could have been transmitted even if we don't know the textual mechanism. So this is speculative, but it's entirely possible. Now, same-sex eroticism was certainly not imported to Europe from the Middle East, nor am I arguing that it became more common in the 12th century. Rather, I suggest that it became in the 12th century something to worry more seriously about because it was a convenient source of blame and a program for Muslims. Not only in relation to sodomy, sexual activity was often seen as a place where a line needed to be drawn uh, in terms of intercultural contact. Women's bodies in particular, and here also men's bodies, become a border that can't be crossed. The sexual depravity of Turks and Saracens was a common trope of Christian writers, particularly in the context of war against them. And the majority of these accusations have to do with the rape of Christian women by Muslim men. This is um, undoubtedly something that happened in wartime or in raids, as did the rape of Muslim women by Christian men and the rape of women by members of their own religious group. Rape was a feature of medieval as of modern battle. Um, however, claims that Saracens or Turks raped Christian boys or adult men were also current at the time of the First Crusade or shortly thereafter. And this is a bit more unusual. The denunciation of 
this practice in the canons, especially if we read it as symbolic, may be part of an attempt to draw a cultural line between Christians and Muslims. Albert of Aachen, who was not an eyewitness, uh, reports that at the Battle of Nicaea, the Turks killed those who were fleeing the city, except for about 200 uh, men, beautiful in face and youthful body, whom they took prisoner. Uh, he doesn't say that they were captured for sexual purposes, but the emphasis on beauty suggests this, as does a later passage in which both girls and boys are captured. Uh, Albert's account of the beating of Peter the Hermit and the Turkish leader Kerboga during the siege of Antioch has Kerboga demand that the Christians send their beardless young men and virgin girls as slaves and threatens to put to death married women and bearded men. Here, the implication of sexual use is not quite as explicit, but we do know that many of the young people on Peter the Hermit's crusade did end up enslaved, and we, do, we don't know but can imagine how they were exploited. A letter that purports to come from the Byzantine emperor Alexios Komnenos recruiting Westerners for a crusade blamed Muslims not only for raping women, but also for engaging in sodomy with men from boys up to old men and even bishops, with the implication that at least one bishop entered into this sin voluntarily since he, he succumbed to its lure. Most scholars agree that this letter dates from the first decade of the 12th century. Guibert of Nogent uh, certainly knew it, writing in 1109, he mentioned Saracen rape of men. So uh, the, the rape of women might be excused since it's at least in accord with nature, but the, uh, the uh, Saracens became worse than animals. Uh, they committed the execrable and profoundly intolerable crime of sodomy against men of middle or low station, also against a certain bishop killing him. Uh, there are no bishops known to have been killed by Muslims uh, during the First Crusade. Uh, so this is um, almost certainly uh, an invention of this sensational claim. But it does indicate a particular concern with sodomy in the crusading context that led up to the Council of Nablus. So if, um, if France did get, or, or the Orléans region, did get the idea of these punishments for uh, same-sex activity from Nablus, this would mean that the repercussions of the medieval encounter with the religious other led to the demonization of sodomy across a wider geographical span in the Middle Ages. And this, the connection certainly shows up later, for example, in the 14th century in the trial of the Templars in France, uh, where I mean, groups or individuals labeled by the church as heretical had been accused of deviant sexual behavior since the beginning of the Christian era. It was a handy and sometimes plausible accusation. Since the church was the main spreader of ideas about sexual morality, a challenge to the church, by heretics could also uh, be seen as a challenge of that morality. In the third, in 13th century France, 
the word bukla uh, was derived from Bulgarian, the supposed source of the Cathar heresy, but may have come to mean someone who engaged in same-sex relations. This is uh, often thought to be the origin of the English bugger. The term ketzerai, meaning heresy, was also used as a euphemism for sex between men in Germany, such that when you see somebody who is being um, put on trial for ketzerai, you don't know from the court records whether he's being tried for heresy or sodomy. They have become synonymous. The connection with heresy was not the only factor in the development of the late medieval discourse around same-sex behavior as criminal. Nevertheless, the shift to the criminalization of same-sex activity could well have been triggered by the encounter with cultural and religious difference in the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the 12th century. And it's probably not a coincidence that, the, that another place we find the criminalization of this activity is in 13th century Castile, as I mentioned, with Alfonso the Wise, who um, where uh, encounters with the religious other were, uh, were very important. The question of whether the Islamic societies of the Middle East had a more welcoming attitude towards same-sex behavior is not something I'm going to try to answer here, but what's clear is that Western Europeans thought they did and didn't consider that to be a good thing. Now back to the livre de justice et de play and its punishment for women. If it is the case that the idea of burning sodomites came to Europe from Outremer and the punishment of castration for sexual crimes came from there too, even though Nablus did not apply it for sodomy, women's facial mutilation as the equivalent to castration uh, may have come from there as well. This is the one you'll remember that said uh, men are punished uh, with losing their member and, at, and afterwards with burning, women are also punished with losing a member. Okay, so I suggest that women's facial, based on Nablus, women's facial mutilation may have been considered the equivalent to castration. Rhinectomy, the cutting off of the nose, was not unknown in Western Europe. It goes back to the ancient world as a punishment for women, appears in the Middle Ages in religious texts in which nuns self-mutilate to avoid being raped, and in literary ones in the 12th century, Marie de France's Bisclavray, in which uh, a werewolf bites off the nose of his adulterous wife. Rhinectomy also appears as a punishment for women's adultery in the Constitutions of Melfi of Frederick II of Sicily in a law attributed to Roger II from around 1140. And there it's presented as a more lenient punishment than being killed by her husband. Uh, um, this could be a borrowing from Byzantine law. I mean, the Sicily was heavily influenced by, by Byzantine law. Uh, there's also um, a law of Knut in England from, from somewhere between 1027 to 1034, prescribing that an adulterous woman should lose her nose and ears and ears. This is possibly also a Byzantine borrowing. A Knut was, is his ideas about kingship, uh, it's recently been argued, were quite heavily 
influenced by uh, his knowledge about the Byzantine Empire. Can't say that his laws have a uh, have a direct influence from there, but but Byzantine uh, customs were certainly not unknown in England. So as in the case of nuns who deliberately made themselves unattractive to avoid being raped, the idea here would be that women's beauty was a cause of sin. And indeed, perhaps by extension, the face would be the member with which one sinned and the uh, mutilation of the face would be a punishment. Uh, the punishment of feminine lust in hell, uh, this is now this next slide, um, appears in uh, medieval sculpture, for example, here in the porch at Moissac, um, by the mutilation of the breasts and genitalia. This is a lustful woman in hell having her uh, breasts gnawed by serpents and her genitalia gnawed by a toad. That's a somewhat different approach to the member with which one sinned. But what is clear is that, that rhinectomy does not remove women's capacity to reproduce as castration does for men's capacity to reproduce. It's more of a symbolic punishment. And in, in uh, Marie de France's Lea Bisclavray, the woman's descendants are born without noses as a sign of their ancestress's sin. Um, but note, she has descendants. She is uh, the punishment. The punishment of a woman couldn't be something that would take away her reproductive capacity because her reproductive capacity didn't belong to her, it belonged to her husband. Um, so this is the gendering of the punishment. The point of castration was less to prevent a man from having sex as it was to prevent him from having children. Having a bloodline was really important for medieval men. It was not as important for medieval woman, women. Not having children might make her unhappy, but that was a personal issue, not a question of bloodline. Uh, the, what the facial disfiguration did was to present her, prevent her, in theory, from having frivolous sex by making her unattractive. So in the livre uh, punishment for sodomy, the member that the woman is to lose for the first and second offense could be a member that she has two of because it's for both the first and second offense, which would suggest that it could be a breast or a limb. Conceivably, a man could have been condemned to lose a limb too, or it could be the nose on the first offense and the ears on the second. Or, and I think this is also a distinct possibility, the author or compiler of the text may not have had a clear idea of what he had in mind. He was just trying to create balance. Oh, this is what it is for men. Well, I should say it's something parallel for women and just not specify. Again, the text claims to be the laws of the kingdom of France, but it's not. It's not an official compilation. It might've been made by a student or scholar for his own use. And much of it is a translation of Justinian's digest. The provision on sodomy is found in a set of punishments said to be current in the Duchy of Orléans, but it's not at all clear that they do reflect contemporary practice. There are other crimes listed as punishment by death, a few by burning, most by hanging, but the only other one uh, for which the punishment is mutilation 
is where someone has caused someone else to lose a member. And then that person is punished by the loss of the same member. Uh, I suggest that the idea of mutilation as punishment for sexual crime and particularly of castration and of there being a secular punishment for sodomy are new and unusual here and that they came from the, the crusader states and that the notional punishment of rhinectomy came with it. The focus of prosecution of sodomy in the later Middle Ages, where we do have evidence about the practice, remained on men rather than on women. In addition to um, Bennett's list of reasons why we don't find so much about women, uh, I would add another that arises from the possible roots of these patterns in the crusading era. The great majority of the Western Christians who went east with the first crusade were men. Some married local Armenian or Greek Christian women. Um, the, there would have been day-to-day -day contacts of various social and commercial types with Muslims as well as with Eastern Christians. But the fact that the canons of Nablus assume that the Saracen woman with whom a man has sex is enslaved is an indication of the largely hostile nature of the encounter in the early 12th century. Uh, so again, after a generation, you have, um, you have uh, Frankish women born in Outremer, but in the, in the first generation of the Crusader states, Western Christian women are less likely to be in a position to be influenced by what we're seeing as depraved Eastern practices. They're much more concerned with men and with women's adultery with other Christian men. It was men who were likely to be tempted in a way that threatened the moral health of the community in um, both in sex with Muslim women and into sex with other men. There was no need, as there would be a century later in the Orléans area, to create a parallel punishment structure for women as an afterthought. The story, this is a grim and unedifying story. It goes against the image that appears in many other medieval sources of a world from whose openness and diversity we can draw lessons. And there are ways in which the Frankish kingdoms in Outremer were uh, open and diverse. But uh, the, although the church was fairly consistent across the Middle Ages in preaching against same-sex sexual activity as it was against all other varieties of non-reproductive sex, a hostility that led to persecution and potentially to painful and shameful death was not an inevitable product of this hostile teaching. Rather, it was a result of specific historical circumstances. The use of mutilation as a punishment was far from universal, but when it was used, it was applied very differently to women and men in a way that underscored men's and women's different functions in society and particularly in reproduction. The punishments in the Livre de Justice et de Play stand as an example of how items from a shared cultural repertoire can be selected and deployed to suit specific strategies. And when French lawyers in the 13th century borrowed from laws that came from a different context, they may not have thought about the origins of these provisions and may not even have known exactly what it was they wanted to borrow, hence the vagueness of the penalty but it stands as an example of how in gendered terms, 
the colonial or proto-colonial power can be toxic to the colonizers as well as to the colonized. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.